Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to These Go To 11. It is I, the Right Reverend Zachary Bartles, and I am here sans Nathan. This is a bit of a bonus episode. Uh, We've missed a few here. Obviously, we weren't uh, recording on Thanksgiving, and even though I once came on as a guest in like October with Greg and Nathan to uh, do a Christmas episode. Nathan and I kind of lack that that sense of long-term planning. So anyway, he's currently sick and uh, there was some scheduling stuff. And so we are going to hopefully be back at you with a nice holiday episode soon. Uh, but this week, I'm going to throw you a little sermon to listen to. This one is a Christmas sermon. It is from Galatians 4, which is an odd place to go for a Christmas sermon, but I always go to odd places uh, for my Christmas stuff. And it is uh, Galatians 4, 1 through 6. The Last Straw is the name of the message. It's about the fullness of time as well as Santa Claus punching a heretic right in the schnoz. Here's the text, in case you don't already know it by heart. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here is the bonus ep, and uh, we will catch you next time. It's truly good to come together in a time that's dedicated to thinking about and putting our attention on the one person who gets our attention and our adoration at Christmas time. And I am talking, of course, about Santa Claus. And I'm going to talk about Santa Claus a little bit, so bear with me, although I'm not going to trash talk him like a lot of preachers like to do, because I think Santa gets a bad rep. Yes, he's not the main thing at Christmas, but Santa's been around a long time. Now, it's true that the kind of current iteration of Santa, red suit, big white beard, eight reindeer, it hasn't really been around that long. It wasn't really formalized and finalized and canonized until the 1920s or 30s. But if you go back, you can find that the kind of evolving legend has been there for centuries. I don't know if they still do it, but when I lived in Grand Rapids, the mall there would have this enormous uh, kind of display in the middle of the mall of these mannequins, a little creepy, all the different iterations of Santa around the world through the ages. And some of them looked more or less like what we're used to and they were kind of comforting and nice. Some of them were really creepy. You know, this one's called Peter of the Darkness and he sneaks in and steals your toes or something. I don't know, but, but they were diverse, but they all had one thing in common, which is that they drew from the true-to-life individual known as Saint Nicholas. And it's funny to me how quickly people will defend something and and get really kind of protective of it. There was a movie that came out this Christmas uh, where Santa was kind of this big brawler with uh, tattoos on his arms and he fought the bad guys. And I remember hearing people say, oh, they shouldn't do that to Santa. You can't, you can't change Santa. But here's the thing. If you go back way before the 20s and 30s, back to the source material, you can find a little of that in St. Nicholas. 
And you have to go way back. It's not uh, that Santa was alive in the the 1800s. St. Nicholas doesn't come from the 1700s. He's not from even the Middle Ages or the 1200s, the 1100s. Actually, St. Nicholas was born 250 years after Jesus. 250 AD. Does that surprise you? Way back then in the early church. And he was rather an important figure in the early church and somewhat well-known. And he had some of those traits that you can see getting picked up in the whole Santa character. He didn't, that we know, like to watch people while they were sleeping, which is probably good. But he actually did uh, give gifts secretly to people. He was very generous, very kind. If the needy would leave their shoes outside to dry or something, he'd go and he would put coins in them, which has now become putting candy and toys into the socks of the overindulged, but you see how it kind of started there and then turned into this this all-benevolent kind of magical uh, figure. But there was more to St. Nicholas than what we emphasize, a lot more. And you can see that in the traditions and in the legacy. Yes, in many traditions, St. Nicholas is the patron saint of children, but also of sailors and archers and pawnbrokers and thieves. It's true. Who knew thieves had a patron saint? (laughs) He says, stop thieving. But he he had a little bit of an edge to him. And yes, while he was alive, he was known for his generosity and his kindness. But he was more well-known, world-famous, in fact, for something else. His temper. His passion, he would say, but really his temper. And if there was one kind of clip, if they had 24-hour news back then, that would always be shown whenever they brought up St. Nicholas, it would be of an angry incident in which he slugged a fellow churchman. This is the story of Santa that no one tells. It happened in 325. And if you know anything about the early church, you know that what would happen in the early church as they were banging out and struggling with the doctrine and what's, what's Christianity and what's Orthodox is when a, a kind of uh, challenge to the true teaching, the faith once for all handed down to the saints would arise in the church, they would call together a church council and all the bishops from all around the Christian world would come together and they would kind of hash it out and deal with this challenge. And the very first one was in 325 A.D., It's called the Council of Nicaea. Out of it comes the Nicene Creed, which we affirm together at Judson Baptist Church. And there, they dealt with this guy, Arius, who was kind of the first of the super heretics. Uh, The guy who started teaching uh, this false doctrine that Christ was not God in the flesh. You see, that had already been, from the beginning, part of the teaching of Christianity, despite what you might hear So much so that when someone started to teach that Jesus was a created being, the highest created being, but a created being, uh, the baby born in Bethlehem was just another uh, guy created by God, well, they had to deal with it. So they called together this council. And one of the bishops who came together was this Greek bishop, St. Nicholas, the bishop of Myra. And as he was sitting there and listening... They, they gave Arius the floor, of course, let him explain himself, make his case. And St. Nicholas just started getting mad. He was listening to the slippery words of Arius as he described how Jesus is not indeed God in the flesh and took scriptures and turned them and twisted them. And finally, he got to the point where he couldn't take it anymore. He stood up, and you have to picture this. He's in full bishop garb, wearing what's called a amophorian, kind of like a stole, like this with crosses on it. You see that in, in icons of, of uh, old uh, Greek bishops and things. And he got up and he just hustled across the floor and sucker punched him. Apparently, he was on the naughty list. 
Now, this is a historical fact. I'm not making this up. Easily verifiable. There's some debate about whether it was a slap or a punch. What we do know is that he, quote, forcefully struck him to the ground. Ho, ho, ho. And I say he's world famous for it because all the bishops from all around Christendom are there. And this is before a newswire, but they all went back home and they all said, oh, you had to have been there. You should have seen Nicholas. And so anyone talks about Nicholas, uh, he, they might know that he was kind and, and generous, but they definitely knew that he was a little bit... And, and, and he became famous. And out of that came one of the earliest of the, of the hymnologies within the church. Uh, the, the song that said, you better not pout. You better not cry. You better not doubt the divinity of Christ, or Santa Claus will drop you like a stocking full of coal. And this is also amusing, I think, for a number of reasons. First of all, because it humanizes someone who is larger than life in our minds. Someone who is perfect, in a sense. He's, he's so benevolent, he's so fair, he defies gravity. And you're like, you know, there's a kernel of truth in this. And it was just a man. Humanizing means flaws, and this is a flaw. For sure, he, he acknowledged it, he repented of it, he apologized to Arius as he should have, but, but St. Nicholas was kind to the needy and hard on the heretics. I can understand why he would get so angry, like, like David hearing Goliath blaspheming God and, and not being able to take it, but really, this is the least Christ-like way he could have possibly dealt with this situation. To get up and walk over. There's almost kind of pre-rumblings of the Inquisition in this. Your doctrine is wrong. So I'll hit you with some physical violence to try and correct it. This was exactly the wrong way to deal with the situation. And by all accounts, the rest of the bishops and everyone present was shocked and horrified. Although I'm sure there were a few who were thinking, well, that was awesome. But as a whole, they said, we, we condemn this. And they actually stripped him of his office, and they put him in the dungeon in chains for the rest of the council. We see in this that that St. Nicholas was human, like everyone, flawed. It's also kind of amusing because of the irony. We think about uh, the way Santa plays into Christianity and our fight to keep Christ in Christmas, the signs, the stickers. Everybody's, oh, get rid of Santa, keep Christ in Christmas. The original St. Nicholas would fly into a violent rage when someone minimized Christ. Perhaps we should kind of fold that back into the mythos. I'm thinking of perhaps a Christmas card with a picture on the cover of St. Nicholas just blasting Arius right off his feet. And it would say, keep Christ in Christmas or else. Deck the heretic. No. Season's beatings. I don't know. This is probably a bad idea. Let's get rid of the violence and stick with the peace on earth. But mostly, I think it's satisfying to hear a story like that, humanizing someone like this. And in it, you hear kind of something that satisfies the desire for justice we have. And you know, this can be played for comedic effect, and, and it's chuckle-worthy. But when you look at even kind of how this sort of thing has been done throughout comedy... The idea of someone annoying, poking, poking, pushing a little bit at a time, a little bit time, finally someone snaps. Usually someone unexpected. You know, the grandmother or the bishop in his full clerical garb and either chews him out or smacks him, whether it's the Three Stooges or Adam Sandler, this is a staple of comedy. Think Bugs Bunny. He endures and endures and endures. He rolls with it and finally one push too far. And of course you realize this means war. Or another of the greats of Western culture. Donald Duck. Eventually, if you push him far enough, he will say, that's the last straw. And I remember as a kid watching those Donald Duck cartoons and just, I'd get excited when he said that. This is going somewhere now. 
He's not going to take this forever. This is going somewhere. Like, I promise this sermon is also going somewhere. And, and I didn't understand that the last straw was the straw that broke the camel's back, but I got what it meant. Uh-oh, in a minute, he's going to break. This is the breaking point. It's, it's the final stroke. It's the match that lit the powder keg. And let me bring it now into Scripture, because not surprisingly, there is a word in Biblical Greek, and of course the New Testament is written in, in Biblical Greek, Koine Greek, that sums this up perfectly. And it's a really important Christmas word. In fact, I would say this word kind of tells us everything we need to know about the place of the Christmas event in the Scriptures. And it's the word pleroma. Say that with me. Pleroma. It's kind of a nice word. Rolls right off the tongue. It's often translated fullness. But I don't think fullness really captures the the full thrust of the word. This is the word used when Jesus feeds 5,000. And then he sends his disciples out with baskets and they collect 12 baskets full of bread and fish left over. Only that's a bad translation. It's weak. It really says 12 baskets of pleroma, 12 baskets of fullness, meaning that you couldn't put another little morsel of bread on top because the whole thing would just fall down. It was full to the point of not any more would, would, would fit. I've heard Dr. Sproul try and, and describe this, this word and what it means by saying, Pleroma, fullness, is when you have a glass and you fill it all the way to the top. And if you put one more drop in, uh, you know, it'll, it'll burst. You have that meniscus, that curved surface at the top. One more drop and it's too full. It overflows. I think perhaps instead we should say it's like a balloon being blown up and blown up. And you get to a point where if you add any more air, it's going to pop. One more piece of straw will break the camel's back. One more word from Arius and he's going to get popped. Now, why does this sum up Christmas? Well, first we look to Galatians chapter 4, in which Paul has been describing the plight of mankind who's lost in sin. And mankind, dead in their sins, try with the shovel of righteousness, human righteousness, of keeping the law to dig themselves out of their situation, only to dig themselves deeper and deeper into the pit. And he he shows how bleak the situation was for mankind. And then he says these words in Galatians 4.4. When the fullness, the pleroma, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now that's Christmas. And the fullness of time, Jesus came from heaven, born of a woman. The same phrase occurs in Ephesians 1.10. The fullness of time. Jesus was born in the fullness of time. This place is the birth of our Savior squarely in history. I think we all know just naturally this distinction and can operate easily between history and myth. History. Nicholas going nuts and and swinging at Arius versus myth. Old St. Nick coming down through the chimney. Uh, Both of them might have some truth in them. In fact, in Scripture we find both. But, you know, you often can find... You, you can find uh, the first words of a story telling, tipping the hat as to what kind of story it's going to be. If I begin a story once upon a time, or twas the night before Christmas, you know, okay, this is going to be myth, or just a story, or something that might have some truth, but it will be, it'll be some kind of a principle. It'll be some kind of allegorical truth. If I start a story this way on November 7th, 1938, at 4.16 a.m., you know, okay, this is probably going to be something historical. And we find the same thing in Scripture. Jesus often uses parables. 
And others throughout Scripture use parables as well. Parable would begin with something like, there was once a man who owned a vineyard. This is going to be truth, but spiritual truth, allegorical truth, not historical fact. Compare that with something like, in the eighth year of King Jehoshaphat, in the seventh month. Okay, this is going to be historical narrative. In fact, there's a a Hebrew word, vayhi, which means, and it happened, or and it came to pass, that we encounter again and again in the Old Testament. In fact, most of the books, the historical books of the Old Testament, begin with this word, and it happened. This is shorthand for, here's something historical. Here's something that you could go back and validate. You could talk to the people if they're still around. And they would say, I saw it with my own eyes. Now, if Luke had wanted to include in his gospel something allegorical, it wouldn't have been completely out there. Rabbis were doing this all the time, a normal way of sharing truth and communicating it. Jesus did it himself. But how does the Christmas story begin? Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Are we dealing here in the realm of spiritual and allegorical truth or historical? Well, clearly it's historical. The reign of Caesar Augustus during the reign of Quirinius. This is less uh, click, click, click and more bing, bang, boom. You know, th- this is the real St. Nicholas. This is the... This is the Fullness of time. And despite all the traditions and the stories and even the myths that are good things, perhaps, wrapped up in our understanding of Christmas, we have to remember that primarily this is a historical celebration for us. Not some kind of spiritual truth, but historical truth. Now, are there spiritual implications? You bet you. But first of all, we must accept that Jesus came into the fullness of time. In fact, we could say of Christmas what later Paul says of Easter, which is if Christ be not raised, then we are to be pitied above all men. If if Jesus didn't come out of that tomb on the third day, we're still in our sins. Well, we could say we're still in our sins if Christ wasn't born. Born of a virgin. Born God in the flesh. The apostles really hammer on this. John, in his first epistle, he makes sure to go out of his way to start his letter by saying, look, this, this Jesus story, this is, not, this is not just myth, this is not just story, this is not just some spiritual truth. This is historical fact. He says this is that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we ourselves have touched. Peter does the same thing in his second epistle when he says we did not follow cunningly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses to his glory. He says why? Pontius Pilate shows up in the Apostles' Creed. You ever wondered that when you're reciting the Apostles' Creed? I believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why does Pontius Pilate get mentioned? There's no Peter, there's no John, there's no Paul. Way more prominent people. Pontius Pilate's like a walk-on cameo. He gets like two scenes in the whole Bible, and yet he gets to be in the Creed. Why? Because the early church is taking this truth that they've based their lives upon and tying it to history. Pontius Pilate, a man whose name shows up in engravings and archaeologists can say, yes, here it is and there it is. It happened in time and not just in time, but in the fullness of time. And again, that brings us back, I think, to St. Nick. Maybe you've experienced that kind of a snapping, flipping your lid, whatever you want to say. 
when somebody pushed you just too far and you just blew up on them. Oh, that's it. I'm going to tell you something. Or maybe you've been at work and your desk has gotten a little bit dirtier and a little bit dirtier and a little bit dirtier. And finally, you've reached the play Roma and said, I can't do anything else until I get this stuff all dealt with and I clear it all off. Or maybe you've watched someone suffering and, and struggling from a distance and you've watched them and watched them until you got to the point where you said, I can't just watch anymore. I've got to help this person. You reached that play Roma. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and that helps us to understand what's happening here, but in each of those cases, it's external circumstances working on you that bring you to that point, to that fullness. God is not being uh, affected by external circumstances, rather he's writing the story. Now, my wife Erin has been blessed with some things that are just amazing, and some things that are not so amazing, and, and let me tell you about some of those a minute. She's been blessed with incredibly detailed and bizarre dreams. And along with that, with an incredible recall of those dreams, and with a burden to share those dreams with me at length. And she'll say, listen, this just be quick. So then the mini tornadoes were chasing me, and I ran into the school, but it was just actually a submarine. And my dad was there, but it was actually Mr. Rushall, the geometry teacher from high school. You remember that? And, and I'll be like, okay, I just woke up. Please stop. This is going nowhere. And then it came to pass, and 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 it came Okay, this is absolutely going nowhere. Probably what you were thinking as I kept going on about St. Nick, and I hope to redeem that. But Erin is also a very gifted writer. In fact, she writes for a living. And when she writes, she, she has a point that she's working toward and doing it artfully and, and bringing things together in a skilled way. And if you read the scriptures without much knowledge of what's going on there from just like a human perspective, often it can seem like one of Aaron's dreams. And then this battle happened and then this prophet said something and then this person was murdered in a gruesome way and then this happened and then a whole bunch of people were born and it came to pass and it came to pass and it's going nowhere. But when you look at it through the lens of God's providence, we see that he's bringing everything toward one point. And that point we call the fullness of time. The Old Testament begins with the words, in the beginning. And then it goes on to say, and then, and then it happened, and then it happened, and then it came to pass. And if you see it from God's perspective and you go back and look at it with hindsight, you can tell that God is directing the narrative toward this point. And it's not only the telling of the story, but the very unfolding of the events that God is bringing about to the fullness of time. And, and that fullness of time happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And you know, you could have asked your average Roman citizen, what's the fullness of time? And they probably would have said, right now. This is the peak of Roman civilization. This, we've arrived. This is the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. We've gotten to the point where, you know, things are happening. Caesar Augustus, yeah, he's good for Rome. Of course, this peace of Rome was achieved through bloodshed. Caesar Augustus actually deposed or killed 300 senators. And he was so hungry for more power and more money that he decided, I think I need to tax everybody anew. And so he gave the decree that everyone should go back to their hometown and there they will register for this new tax. Now, this is one reason that we can understand why Mary and Joseph of Nazareth are in Bethlehem when Jesus is born. But there's a bigger reason. 
We look at it through the providence of God, and we think about this prophet Micah, who hundreds of years earlier had said, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are smallest amongst the tribes of Israel, from you will come the Messiah, the fulfilling of this prophecy, so that this descendant of David will be born in the hometown of David, and people will understand what this means. And this is why we can say we knew that he would not be born on the way there. And he wouldn't be born when they got back home because God and his providence is working out when the news arrives about the census, when the baby is born, when, when, when the fullness of time belongs to God. And when it happens, when the baby is born and God in the flesh is here in our midst, in a sense, the the glass overflows, the balloon pops and nothing can be the same again. Everything is divided now between before and after. In fact, to this day, that's how we divide time. B.C., before Christ, A.D., the year of our Lord, Anna Domine. Cracks me up when secularists say, no, 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 B.C.E., before the common era. Okay, what determines the common era? Oh, the birth of Christ. Uh, But it's all divided now. And, And from the outside, I acknowledge this would look just arbitrary, random. This one of many Jewish rabbis was born on this year, so they used to think. We think they were probably off by about six years now, but that's neither here nor there. This is when he came, uh, more or less. And so now this is the point at which we just start over. All things are made new. But we know from Scripture and by faith that it was anything but random. That God was pushing toward the fullness of time. That that, that baby in the manger is God in the flesh. We call this the incarnation. That simply means the being made into flesh. That God stepped into time. And this is the other reason why Pleroma, fullness, sums up what Christmas means to us. In Colossians 1, we read this, For in Him, being in Jesus, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Think about the balloon again. Full as it can get, the glass full to the top. In Jesus, in this baby, all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. One chapter later, he reiterates it. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In this baby, not, not that he's part of God, and we all are. Not that he has the divine spark. Not that he has something special that God gave him. No, fully God and fully man. This is God humanized. St. Nick is humanized for us when we see, oh, he wasn't perfect. He had a short fuse and really bad judgment. Jesus comes and he's humanized. God in the flesh and he is perfect. Tempted in all ways as we were yet without sin. God with us. God come down from heaven. And the people had been waiting and, and the earth had been groaning for this. We think about Sinai. When Moses went up to talk to God, and there was fire and thunder and all of this, and the people said, we want something a little less scary, something manageable, something approachable, so they made a golden image together. And they were punished for it. But people were waiting, they were wanting, they were wanting something that they could see and touch, God to come down, and in the fullness of time, He does. And my friends, that same God who wrote that whole story and directed it all to that point is writing your story, or rather, writing you into His story. And when you look at your life from your point of view, whether you're looking at just today and how you got here, or everything and how you got where you are today, it might look like one of Aaron's dreams. 
And then it happened, and then it happened, and then it happened, and then it happened. And it's just outward circumstances working themselves out on you. But if you look at it through the eyes of the providence of God, you will see in your own life that it is anything but random. God perhaps even brought you here for your fullness of time tonight to hear this news that Jesus Christ was born for you, that you might have eternal life. That you might stop digging yourself deeper and deeper trying to earn salvation with your own righteousness and good works. Or standing up like Arius to explain why you are already righteous in God's eyes or righteous enough. We look at the scriptures and see so many of, of the holy people that we paint and put on stained glass windows and how flawed they are, how humanized they are. And we see that each of them had a point where they came to the fullness of time in their own lives and their own heart and God intersected with them and nothing was the same after that. They got B.C., they've got A.D. And it's pretty clear most of the time. Thinking about Peter falling down on his face before Jesus and saying, away from me, I am a sinful man. And then we see three years later, Jesus down at Peter's feet, washing them, saying, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. We think of Paul and you look at his life as he's trying to earn God's favor by persecuting the church, digging himself deeper and deeper and deeper. And you'd look at that guy and say, look at the mess that this guy's life is. He's hurting people to please God. He, he's digging himself into a pit he could never come out of. And, and you look at that and it looks like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this guy's lost. And yet, we see that as he comes toward Damascus, God's waiting for him because God was writing the story. And there he reaches his pleroma, his fullness of time. And God kind of pulls a St. Nicholas and knocks him right off his horse and says to him, Paul, why do you persecute me? And a new Christian is born that day, a great missionary, the first of the great international missionaries. He's sucker punched in a sense. And if you've not come to faith in Jesus Christ... Maybe it's tonight or maybe it's another day, but he will come and he will sucker punch you with the truth and knock you off your horse and show you how much he loves you and how Christmas and Easter are both all about his bringing you to him. Christmas, he comes down to be with us and he dies and he rises again and he ascends into heaven and he calls us to join him. And you know, it, it might be more convenient for us to focus instead on the myth. To import the myth into our understanding of Jesus. To think, you know, I think Jesus has a list of naughty and nice. And he's keeping track. Every time I do something good, he checks one column. I do something bad, he checks another. That's more comfortable than the, and it came to pass, the historical. The, the sucker punch. But Jesus is not keeping track of, okay, based on their righteousness, that their merit, their performance, these people are naughty, they're nice, I'll check it twice later. No, all of us are humanized in the, the sinful sense. All of us would be in the sinful column, despite the myths we tell, despite our getting up like Arius and, and twisting our words and trying to, like the serpent, make ourselves sound more righteous than we are. And in the fullness of time, the fullness of deity came. And, and you know, he didn't, like Nicholas see us there pontificating and justifying ourselves and saying, well, I've done more good than bad, or well, I think I've done pretty well given my situation, and bit full with rage and run over and knock us down. He didn't respond that way. He came to seek and save the lost. In fact, Jesus experienced that same situation. He stood up in a religious court and was accused. 
And he said nothing. And when he finally spoke, he said something rather benign. You're the one who said it. And a guard punched him and knocked him down to the ground. And he accepted it. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was crucified for us. And he did it so that our relationship with God wouldn't be, am I in the naughty or the nice column based on my own performance? Rather, in Colossians 2, right after he gives us this whole thing about the fullness of deity, we read this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross Your record condemns you, but he took it and nailed it to the cross so that now, instead of seeing us and our sin, God looks down and if we've put our faith in him, he sees Jesus and his righteousness in us. And let me just close with this quote that we looked at a couple weeks ago here at Judson. And it's it's a quote about how the the historical aspect of Christmas is important, but it's, it's not good enough. Luther says this, Therefore you see that you do not treat the gospel only as history, for that is only transient. Neither regard it only as an example, for it is of no value without faith. Rather see to it that you make this birth your own, and that Christ be born in you. The gospel does not merely teach about the history of Christ. No, it enables all who believe it to receive it as their own which is the way the gospel operates. My friends, we first must acknowledge that he came into the fullness of time and historically Christ was born. But remember, he was born for you. And the way that he's born for you is that you receive him by faith. Repent of your attempts to dig yourself out or or talk yourself out and say, I accept this gift, this Christmas gift, this Good Friday gift, this Easter gift, when the fullness of deity came into the fullness of time, lived a perfect life on my behalf, died a sinless death, and rose again so that I could be righteous in the sight of God. This time, we're going to uh, join together in singing Silent Night. And as you do that, I pray that you do reflect on the fullness of time. Not only the fullness of time historically when Jesus came, but how God is writing your story and how what looks like it's, and it came to pass and it came to pass and it came to pass with no rhyme or reason is something that God is doing to call you to himself. Amen. These go to 11.